so insane about the term cisgender <sighs> i grow weary every day like i grow weary we'll, we'll make a note we'll, we'll put a pin in that i have to because i'm just like what okay and i also don't like how they keep acting like it's new well i'm like because it is new to them but how and whatever is like new to, and whatever is like new to them must be new to the world i'm just like that's not how it works and i just don't be like how are you this late though i'm like Sis, this is your first time hearing cisgender in 2023? Yeah, they're just hearing cisgender and they're offended by it. And that's what's trippy to me. Like, I heard the term cisgender was like, what does that mean? Then they explained it and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Moving on. Listen, it's really absurd. Meanwhile, they doing everything. It's like, this is a descriptor. This is an adjective. It's how you distinguish between groups, which you know, because you're distinguishing between yourself and trans women as it is, right? You like real woman and whatever else you want to throw in front of woman, but not sis. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> when I see people say like, neither Democrats or Republicans give a fuck about us. I'm like, okay, so what's your plan? Right. You're, since you're so smart, since you're smarter than all of us, what's your plan? <laughs> it's also funny, too, because everybody who claims... what I, I saw a meme or a tweet about this. It was like, it'll be the person that says, oh, I'm independent. I don't go for every side, but everything out their mouth is a criticism of the left. And you say anything about the right and they be mad. <laughs> they be like... <laughs> I'm like... There we go. You're independent, right. but okay. Right. All right. Sure. Like, your talking points seem to align with a particular side, but I hear you. Sure. Every time. <laughs> and then people think they're like really, what's what I'm looking for? Just like intellectually advanced because they're like, you I'm know, y'all people thinker. think that these Democrats give a fuck about us and that these, none of these people give a fuck about us. I'm like. And neither do you. And neither do you. Because what's the plan, babes? What is the plan? And the same people who will tell you that, what I think is so funny is there are so many like commentators like that constantly, I don't care about either side, I'm an independent, forget this, none of it matters, fuck voting, you're a vote blue no matter what, damn. But you follow electoral politics exclusively though. So make that make sense for me. If it doesn't matter, it's unimportant. Why so much weighing in? Why is this the source of what you cover? Please, let's make it make sense. Because if it, di if it didn't matter, surely you would have something that you do think matter and you would be focused there and you would be directing my attention to that, No. Right. But. That's why when people say like, oh, like I'm not voting. I'm like, okay, so what's the plan? Right. If you're not going to, what's the, what are you doing instead? Right. 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 But they ain't got no instead. It's just, it's just nihilism. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, that's all it is. And they love to tell you that. They, I, I get called a vote blue no matter what damn every day. I'm like me, a, a gal who can't vote. <laughs> like, never voted for none a day in my life, but all right. <laughs> vote blue no matter what damn. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> I don't even be defending Democrats. I'm just like, I'm just defending common sense. I'm like, they're just not yes. the same. I mean, they're just they're not, not the same. They're not the same. Multiple things, and, and 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 no one wants to live in a world of multiple things. It can be true. I'm like, listen, I can criticize the Democrats until I'm blue in the face, and I do, and I have, and I will. Does that make them what the Republicans are? No. No. <laughs> like, no. It's simply no. When people say that, I think it's funny when people think they're so left that they come all the way around to the right. Like, you are so leftist and progressive that now you're a Trump supporter. <laughs> you see through Biden so clearly and that's why you voting for Trump. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> right. Real progressive, babes. <laughs> uh, 
And like, I hate people trying to convince you there's nuance, by the way, like to fascism. I love it. They always act like you're missing something. Like there's something, if you look behind It's the like trees, what they do with Kanye. where they call him. Same. No, you just don't. You, you don't missing, see it. <laughs> you just gotta. Now what's, what's happened, y'all, is that we have, we have basically started an episode without starting an episode because we, we, we're, we're in it already. Welcome to Small Doses. This is, pronounce your last name again. Oluren, Eliam. Because Oluren. I always talk myself out of it. I, in my <laughs> mind, I'm like, it's Oluren. But then I want to add an extra, like... Electra, little something, some... Ola, I want to add a, a Ola Urin. And it's like, yes. no. It's just Oluren. It's like when people Oluren. see seals and they're like, Cialis? You sure? Nope. <laughs> just seals. Just seals. So we're here with Oluyemi Oluren. And, you know, as you have noticed already, vast abundance of knowledge, of wit of information and we get to hear and just talk about a myriad of topics just like all day, but that is unfortunately not the format of this podcast. But I will first say that I discovered you because you were doing, do you still work with The Hill? I was never working for The Hill. I was just guest. I am a, I, I know it's a popular, everybody thinks you go, I think I just set The Hill on fire for the week that I was hosting. So everybody swore I worked for The Hill, but I did not work for The Hill. I'm just a guest of parents like everybody else, friend of the oh, show. I just wow. was hosting. Wow. I definitely, well, they're silly. They should have hired you. It, it, listen. <laughs> That's another story on right. how I build platforms all the time and don't get invited to be there. <laughs> Touche. Uh, <laughs> I relate. Well, I was one of those people that definitely thought that you were hired because you should have been, because you did set them on fire, because you were speaking so candidly, so earnestly, and so intellectually about a myriad of topics. And I was like, I need to find out who this is. Who is this? Who is this? And with further Thank discovery, you. learned that you were a criminal defense attorney and that you work very, very closely with prisoners on Rikers and yes. constantly informing us about what is going on at Rikers and why Rikers should not exist, exactly, et cetera. Yes. And you're based in New York. I lived in New York. I've been to Rikers. I taught a class at Rikers when I was at Columbia. And I think for a lot of people, prison exists on the fringe. Yeah. It's like this thing that's kind of just like, if you don't have to deal with it, then it doesn't matter to you. Yes. And yep. what I want to talk about within our conversation today is just really like the unseen ways that what's going on in prison affects what's going on in your life. Like as a, yeah. as a law abiding citizen, right? Yeah. Like the ways in which what's going on in prisons affect you, because I think it's very easy for people to decide, well, they're criminals and whatever they get, they deserve. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, funny enough that you say people view it as something that's on the fringe of society because that's precisely why I wanted to be a lawyer even before I decided, oh, public defense or criminal defense or anything like that in particular because the law and politics is something that people treat like, oh, bad first state conversation. Like, let's avoid that. Let's, uh, let's get around that. Meanwhile, I'm like, well... The law is always interacting with you. Everything that is so is because of the law. Like, they don't have that window in your apartment because they think it's cute. It's because they have an obligation to put it there. You could call your landlord because you have a right to do that. So I felt like, well, if the law is always interacting with me, then I want to interact with the law, right? It never mm. is about reverence. It's about we have this body that's on top of us. And then as far as Rikers in particular, 
What I think is interesting is before when I decided there was a time where I thought I wanted to be a divorce attorney and in college because I was like, oh, drama, that'll be exciting. Tea. <laughs> but then as I'm writing my thesis, I was writing my thesis, Colored Bodies Matter, the relationship between our bodies and power. I realized that we, you think it's insidious, right? Like you think that when you you hear about racism in the criminal system and everybody, or you hear about these particular stories that people think are, you know, these tragic anomalies, but they believe that it's something you have to parse out. Like you need to go get a magnifying glass, some statistics, an investigator and all this to figure out that the system is racist. No child, that is not the case. I realized from the very first time walking into court as a public defender, like, oh no, it's on its face. Yes. This is on its face. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I'm like, if this is on its face in this transparent way, like an example I always tell is, I was once, rep same, back to back, right? Pile of cases. I represented a black guy that was accused of when weed was still fake, fake um, legal. Yes, fake legal. Fake decriminalized in New York City. They, there was a black guy and they were asking for thousands of dollars of bail on him for uh, allegedly smoking a blunt. Immediately after, I represented a white guy found with a bag of drugs, right? Obviously... Dealer, consent to release. Same judge, same prosecutor, just consent to release. And tell and me what consent around. to release means. Consent to release means we're not going to put up an argument. We are going to agree, the prosecutor and the judge, uh, they we're just going to agree to release them. So like normally at arraignment, so, so the prosecutor, the black guy, you go, I ask the judge, hey, I want my client released on his own recognizance. And then the prosecutor goes, no, I don't want that. I want this amount of money for them. So when I had the white client, the prosecutor then goes, we consent to release. And wow. Said, okay. And that's how it always would go. It would always go that way. Or more often than not, yeah. every time I, on the rare occasion I represent a white person, the case goes nowhere. Like I've never had a white client for more than three appearances. Like, and you know what? I think, of course, a lot of people still think, oh, it's New York though. It's New York. It's not It's New York. <laughs> it's America. I think, I think that's funny. And I think it's funny how that myth gets spread, right? Like about, like, I always think that's interesting that New York City is simultaneously painted like this is progressive blue utopia with all this diversity while also being painted as Gotham City with one of the most racial, like, let me put it to you this way. Rikers, Rikers is 90 over 95% black and brown. There are 10 million people, over 10 million people in New York City, 42% of whom identify as white. So why is Rikers, a place that's been open for over 100 years, over 90% black or brown? We think that's a coincidence. And none of those, 85% of everybody at Rikers has not been convicted of a crime. They are there pre-trial. So is it a coincidence that a city with 10 million people, 42% of whom are white, the vast majority in its pre-trial detention centers are just people who are too poor to afford bail and are being held in one of the most, a human rights crisis, a human rights crisis and a bond of a pretrial detention center, they're all just conveniently black or brown? Well, you know, it goes to show why when Jordan Neely's life was taken on this train in New York, you know, I think yeah. a lot of people were surprised that New Yorkers were so in support of this situation, especially this yeah. bullshit-ass mayor. And yeah. it goes to show, like, no, this is a city that's in a state, that's in a country that is racist to the core and still has in its constitution that slavery is legal if you are convicted or if you're even in a situation where you could be convicted. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it never looks at the system in its entirety. When you, Jordan Neely is a perfect example of so many different aspects of the way that New York criminalizes poor and black and brown people because Jordan Neely is somebody who has failed on a myriad of different levels. Right. Funny enough, one of my colleagues and friends was his attorney at Legal Aid, was his attorney for many years. So I was already familiar with Jordan Neely before that even oh, happened wow. because- yeah, he's somebody she'd been trying to get help for years. Like they had been showing, you know, if you've seen the videos and performing on the subway, how that happened was Jordan Neely's mom was killed like many years yes. ago. So brutally. that combined was mental health. Brutally murdered, brutally murdered. So think about how that impacts. It's funny when they when they talk about crime, I always think it's interesting. They will they will make crime out to be black or brown, black or black on black, and all this different things. But how are we simultaneously the defendants and the victim, and you still don't give any kind of humanity, right? Because when you look at it, the Jordan Neely, who these people will justify that the system should be abusing them and it should have criminalized him and all of this, but it will never look at the failure. Like crime isn't thought of. He isn't thought of somebody who was a victim of crime when he lost his mother, right? Nobody looks at how the system had failed them up until that point and how it's failed them afterwards. But suddenly he's just purely the defendant. There is never this acknowledgement that the same people in our communities that you are labeling the criminals and the criminal defendants are also the same people on the receiving end. They are in that same community receiving all of this suffering and trauma and these failures of the system. So Jordan Neely is a compounded effect of the way that New Yorkers are forsaken between his homelessness, between his mental health, between the criminal system continuously just funneling him in and out of the system. And that's also something I think is interesting. They'll talk about his rap sheet and how many cases he have. But that never becomes evidence of the system's failure. The system was obviously already involved, right? Why is that not a reflection of the fact that continuing to criminalize this person who is homeless, we know of mental health issues, has not led them to not get into running with the laws? That has not helped them at all, right? So is that not a reflection of the system failing? But no. But no. But I feel like that, like what you're describing is why I feel people need to have more, I mean, asking for compassion is a lot, but more awareness about the systems that are in place that create these types of scenarios, that create people who live within these circumstances, right? Like when we look at prisons and people say, well, prisons exist on the fringe, it's like, okay, but if this prison is a site of like a complete failure of human rights, what happens to those people when they get out? They are now coming back into the society that you're in. Right. And it being on the fringe is intentional, right? Like that's something, prisons are intentionally placed far away from us or made incredibly difficult for us to visit so that we see them as other. Because if you think of Rikers, I always say Rikers is a place that infamy works against it. Everybody's heard of Rikers, but mm-hmm. they have very little understanding of what Rikers is because everyone's heard of Rikers, but the minute you say it's a pretrial detention center, people are like, What? Because they think it's this infamous, terrible place for terrible people. They don't realize, no, Rikers is the fate of anybody that gets arrested in New York City and does not have the money for bail, which then goes to speak to, well, who is arrested? Who is criminalized? Who are they putting there and who is being subjected to this system? But it doesn't doesn't get assessed that way at all. Can you talk to me about bail? Because I think a lot of people are getting more, uh, well, they're becoming more aware simply by the nature of like the cash bail systems being removed in certain places. I think in Illinois and California just passed a no cash bail. And I know that strikes fear in the hearts of some because they're like, that means that the murderers, they're all going to be out in the streets. And I wanted you to just shed some light on 
what exactly is cash bail so people can really understand yeah. why this is a good thing. Yes, absolutely. You know, the first thing I always like to say about bail, because these boogeyman stories are painted only around particular places, right? They choose New York City because these are dog whistles, right? They choose New York City. They choose Chicago. They choose LA, places like that to be, oh my God, the bail. They're all going to be out. But meanwhile, New Jersey, right, ne right next door, New Jersey got rid of cash bail in 2014 under gov Republican Governor Chris Christie. And you ain't heard a peep. What? I did not know that. They've been without cash bail for almost 10 years, baby, under wow. their Republican governor. You see? You see how they be trying to, you know what I mean? <laughs> you mm. see? You see? So it's funny. Bail, bail is painted. America is funny because America has a lot of propaganda slogans that it just throws out and then people believe it even though there's nothing legally to support it. And I think the perfect example of that is, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Not in this country, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Not no. so they what they're to give an example of how the US like weaponizes this cash bail system is this there are about two million people incarcerated in the United States. Over four hundred thousand of them have not had a trial. They are there pre-trial. And I think also important to recognize is suicide is the largest cause of death in local jails and prisons. And most of those people that commit suicide are held in a pre-trial detention center for about a week before it happens. So let's let's understand. I feel like that. That's the larger array that we need when we really look at how horrific wow. this is. Yeah. And so the popular myth is that bail is set based on dangerousness. And it's not. The legal purpose of bail is to ensure that a person returns to court. That is what the purpose of bail is there. When you go in court, the argument you, you are making, me making the argument to why you should be released is based on whether or not there's evidence that you will return to court. So if I say, hey, this person lives in this community. They've lived there for this amount of time. They have a job there. Their family's there. There's every reason to believe that they should return to court. And the prosecutor, if a prosecutor is trying to make an argument that somebody's not, because that's what bail is supposed to be, bail is based on that, not on dangerousness or anything. Because again, these are unsubstantiated charges. At arraignments, there are no evidence presented. At arraignments, all it is is hearsay. That's literally what a criminal complaint is, right? Is someone said this happened. That's it. No evidence is shown to anybody. So the arguments that we are making is based purely on that. So I'll say this person should be released. They have ties to this community. They're going to return. And the prosecutor would say something like, oh, well, they have a criminal record and this many times they failed to appear in court. And that would be a reason or they've absconded or something like that. That is a reason what bail would be set. Okay. Those were the actual legal understandings of bail. So what has happened, what happens under a cash bail system is... The same court that just recognized when they assigned you as a public defender that this person is too poor to afford an attorney will then say, the prosecutor will say, well, set this amount of money on them. You know, it has nothing to do with dangerousness or anything like that. It's not on the crime. It's set this amount of money. You have it. You can come out. You don't have it. You don't. And that's why in a criminal system where over 80% of the people incarcerated in America were beneath the poverty line before arrest. They're stuck there. So without a cash bail system, how it works in like in New York, New York still has a cash bail system, but we had bail reform passed at the top of 2020. Certain misdemeanors, traffic offenses, and nonviolent crimes will no longer be bail eligible, which means that the judge can't set cash bail. Unless, though, if there are violent crimes, there are felonies, if it's a domestic violence, or it's a rearrest. And I think this is important because they love all of the attacking cash bail narrative is always about rearrest. They're going to get out and they're going to do it again. If you get rearrested, you go to jail. <laughs> that's, how, that's, that's how it works. If I got you out, if I told the judge yesterday, hey, let him out, and they get arrested, tomorrow the judge is going to say, no. <laughs> that's a rearrest. <laughs> that is bail eligible. Under the so jail. Under, cash, under the jail and under a cash bail system without getting rid of cash bail, it doesn't mean 
Oh, it, it actually, to be honest, works negatively for someone who's accused of something particularly serious because what it means is they'll just remand you. They'll say you have to wait pre-trial all together. You will just be in. And that's what Jersey does. So if you're accused of gun possession, anything serious, violent, remanded. And that's what will happen now in Illinois that just got rid of over the pre-trial Fairness Act. So... It's a myth. What happened in New York City is we got we already had the failure to appear rate, the failure to return to court was already very low. Like over 90% of people already returned to court prior to bail reform. And since passing bail reform, more people have returned to court. And less than very like, I think it's less than a couple of percent of anybody is rearrested for any kind of felony or violent crime. So that's just not the case. But still in New York and all these places, if you are accused of a violent crime, they're going to set bail on you or remand you. So it's just a myth. You see? I just think it's so easy for them to put out the headline and no one, not no one, it's not fair to say no one, but for the most part, a lot of folks don't read the actual, it's not even fine print, just read the article. Yes. It's not even like you got to really read between the lines, but it's just that (laughs) the messaging gets sent that this is supporting lawlessness. This is being not tough enough on crime, et cetera. Mm. And... That is just simply not accurate to what this is really about. It's the same way that like defund the police got, yeah. you know, that phrase got wokeified, you know, where they mm-hmm. like took it and turned it into something else and then tried to undermine what it actually meant. When we understand defund the police means taking the funding that would normally be being sent to the police and actually sending it to community it. resources that will Absolutely. build up a community so it requires Less policing. Bing, bing, perfection. Nothing to add, no notes. <laughs> 10 out of 10, would recommend. But you are not even from here. Why no, did you come no, here? Not. To America originally. Um, I wanted to be a lawyer in America as a, I convinced my folks, my parents live in the Bahamas. What made you decide Why? to leave the crystal waters of Bahamas? I am from Nassau. My island is 21 by 7 miles the long. The conch fritters. Yes. I did. Listen, listen. And I'm a Bahamian supremacist. So, <laughs> <laughs> so don't even get me started. <laughs> don't even get me started. I, you know, honestly, I think... I mean, I'd always known I wanted to be a lawyer. I think on some level, maybe my 14-year-old me, maybe I thought I was bigger than my island or something or what I wanted yeah, to do um, I get it. to some degree. Yeah, and I... I thought I was bigger than my island. Not, Florida. You get it. You Florida. <laughs> that was the island I was I went to I was Florida on. first. That was my first year in the U.S. I went to Florida first. I moved my way up. Okay. I, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I convinced my my folks, like, I want to be a lawyer in America. When I looked into it immigration-wise, I was like, it is going to be so hard. And that is the understatement of the century, by the way. I wish I could go talk to 14-year-old me about these choices. But I convinced my folks. My daddy was not with it. My mommy was. So she sent me, like, without my daddy co-signing it. Took them about a year to get on board. And then eventually they got on board and, you know, sent my other sisters after me. But they still live home in in the Bahamas. Wait, so you came up to America when you were 14? Yeah, by myself, yes. And just went to high school? yes. What? Yes. Yes, I did. That's a that real that's a real Caribbean person day. Yes. When absolutely. when when American folks will tell me like I'm afraid to move, I'm like, oh, you need to just go talk to a West Indian. Because <laughs> the way that Caribbean people will get off an island and go anywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you were 14, think about that now. You came to the States yeah. 14. How was it when you first got here? Were you like, was it culture shock? Was it excitement? What was it? Culture shock. Uh, the, all the culture shocks. It took me about a, it took me, 
It took me like five years to figure out what was going on. <laughs> I'm telling you because you have to understand. You grow up America, right? You watch the same media. You know, you think you think you know what's going on, or you understand? Like you just don't proceed. There was just was nobody to give me any frame of reference because you have to remember it was only my idea. Like none of my my grandmother <laughs> were not into going to America. <laughs> none of my family was in America. They had no affinity for it, no thoughts. So no one gave me a sit down. There was nothing. So for me, it was like I'm born and raised in the Bahamas, which is a black majority country, and I'm not lying to y'all. I didn't know that there were places that weren't. Like, I never processed that. I, it was never said to me. You know what? So what was it's I, so interesting when I hear that because it's actually not as uncommon as you think. Like, uh, yeah. the incredible journalist Charles Blow, like, he said that he grew up in, like, a town in Louisiana. And yeah. he had black teachers. He had black doctors. He had black everything. He had no idea, like, once he got out of there, like, oh, wait. And then my man grew up in Queens. And he was like, when he left Queens, it was, he would see white people and his mom have to be like, stop staring. No, that's real because I live in Flatbush now. And when I moved out now, when I go into Manhattan, I'd be like, right, right, right. I'm not in an all black place again. I didn't move to Little But Caribbean you know what the Flatbush, difference so is? Yeah. You don't think about killing them when you see them. <laughs> this is facts. So see how that. No. Yeah. This is facts. No, but this is actually real tea. <laughs> uh, so when I, I, I always tell the story, my first day, I went to school in Florida. And where in Florida are you? School. You're in Miami. You're in Pembroke Pines. Boca, where you at? Boca del Rey. Okay. Boca, Boca Raton del Rey Beach. Just real. You get And it, you had right. family there? That's why you went to Boca del Rey? No. This is a boarding school? So it was a college prep school. And it was a college prep school. And then after that, I went to boarding school in West Virginia. So the story is going to keep getting West Virginia? Oh, it's it's going to get deep, Amato. Like, I'm telling you. Like, I I'm locked in. I'm locked in. I learned by trial and error, okay? I be trying to tell people I have a PhD in whiteness. I was not around none but white people. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, that was immersion. Yes, 100%. I wish you, on my first day, so when I first get to America, you know, I speak, people think I speak fast now and they have no idea what I speak like in my natural form. When I first got here and I'm speaking Bahamian dialect, which is English to me. <laughs> no, I understand the Americans. I figure they understand me. I'll never forget it. I get to my chem, my first class is chemistry. I'm late. It was this teacher. His name was Mr. Alper. And he goes to ask me why I'm late. I'm in the doorway. And I tell him, I'm telling the class this big story about how I'm late. Everybody just looking at me. Give us a taste. And Give I us a taste. To, Give us a taste. Just, listen, they just was over there like, I'm over here like, yeah, so I was trying to get there and I was walking over there. But the place, you know, I'm trying to get to my chemistry class and that... <laughs> The whole room looking at me. And I don't know what's going I don't know why they're looking at me like that. I'm like, no one says nothing. Every time I talk to anybody for the next two, three periods, it was not till lunchtime and I found the other Bahamians and they told me, Alami, they do not know what the hell you are saying. And I was like, um, let me find out. <laughs> so that's the first thing. I'm like, oh, don't nobody get me. Then second of all, I'm not lying to you. It took me so long to figure out what was different about the composition of the room before I realized all these people were white. I was like, what is going on? on here then on top of that then i'm in boca del rey a really jewish area yeah there are no jews in the bahamas there are none the bahamas mm. there are none the bahamas is constitutionally yeah, christian the whole place is black the only mention of jews was in the first testament in religion class so i've never even it's never even been on my consciousness so we are i'm like sitting in the class and i think a holiday a jewish holiday was coming up and someone asked i think the teacher asked like oh if there were going to be students out to observe it or whatever for the, for the jewish holiday and i must have giggled internally like they was asking about the tooth fairy and the whole class was like <laughs> <laughs> i'm like oh 
oh, oh, we in a new place, right? And that's so there, that's my first trying to figure out. I spent that first year just trying to be understood by them. Like, how okay, they don't know that word. That's not an Americans don't get that. I have to talk at this pace. Cool. Then after that, I immediately go to West Virginia. I spend the first year in Florida. Then I go to West Virginia. What? I don't know what it is about West Indians, but we keep going to places in America that aren't the place to go. Like my cousin Deeply. decided, okay, well, I'm going to go to Tennessee. And I was like, now? You're going to go to Tennessee now? <laughs> Tennessee now is not where you want to be. And she, Yo, she lasted we, two we don't weeks. Know better. She lasted two weeks. Two weeks? She lasted two weeks no, and see, then called my uncle to fly her home. Because I was also like you're going to go there and I'm not even concerned that you're going to get lynched, but what's ha you're going to get pregnant. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> because you're not ready for Memphis niggas. ain't nothing niggas. to do. You're not ready for <laughs> Memphis niggas. You're not equipped. I'm screaming because that's definitely real shit. I definitely believe it. Like, I, listen, I, Ohio niggas. You're not equipped. Like you, it's different. You know? Yes. So I was this like, I, and I what else like, you going to do? And what else are you going to do but the Memphis niggas? There's no other option. What else are you going to do? She There's made nothing it back. else. You have she to do She made it back pregnancy-free. I love that for her. And I think she's she's there, she's going somewhere else. Or I think she's going to like SMU or something now, which, you know, it's Texas, but, you know, it has enclaves. Whereas like yeah. Tennessee right now, it's just like, that's not, it, of all the places in this whole place to go, don't go there. We don't be knowing no better. I will never, yo, my mommy, I, that's one thing I will say. I think about this often, especially because I just turned 30. I remember right before I moved to America, my mommy giving me a big speech about, oh, all the things I could realize she was right about or what she know about when I 18 and blah, 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 blah. My parents have never known what the hell they was talking about. <laughs> I want to say that 50, I, I firmly, I can say that 15 years in, my parents don't know what they be talking about with America. My mommy sent me to West Virginia because she liked the call she had with the with dean the on the phone. admissions person. To West Virginia to be a coal miner. I was the miner. only black girl in my entire senior class. Girl, the you were the only, only black one. girl in the town. Listen, but real tea. And I'm not just a black girl. I'm a particular kind of black girl. I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not like, oh, let's, You're not let's get along to go along. Bing. Bang. And I told, and this version of me had been, wasn't acclimated and assimilated or understood any version. This to me is just like, hold on, this is some bullshit. I don't know what's up. I don't have the words, but I know that this is some bullshit. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, I remember it took me, I'm not lying. It took me years to figure out that racist is the word I'm looking for. Like, I'm telling you, because it wasn't, with the white people in a minority in the Bahamas, mind you, right, we have... We have we have colonialism. You see, yes. you know, but it's not as transparent to you as a kid. You can't see that in the same, the same way. So I just was never even, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I just know these people's conduct is not adding up. They are saying some wild shit to me. These these rankings don't seem fail. <laughs> I don't. The shit that they saying is wild. Like I remember really trying to get, get like what I'm to give you a perfect example. My senior year, I'm the only black girl. And I get in everywhere. I've always gotten into, I applied a bunch of schools and I got in everywhere. Just like when I applied to law school, I applied to a bunch of places and I got in everywhere. Flex, 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 flex. Listen, and these people talking to me crazy, Amanda. This woman, the English teacher, calls me into the classroom, calls me in from, I remember I was like in art class or something, calls me into her class to tell me how she believes I'm going to flunk out of college. Why would I? Wh and if you don't, again, 
You're not even, I'm from a black majority country. My daddy is an architect that went to Oxford. My mommy is a CPA. My big sister went to school. All my siblings are decorated academics. What the fuck is this woman talking about? <laughs> like, I'm like, so I'm like trying to was figure out. Was she trying to pose it like she was being helpful? No. She was trying to break my spirit, but I was too, I was too like strong. I couldn't even figure out. I couldn't figure out. Cause I'm just at this point, I'm not, I'm not even like operating like as a black person. I'm also right. operating as allowing me the individual who does well in school. Who are you talking to? <laughs> like I'm here I'm and like, I'm doing fine, ladies. So why? Right. And again, if you've never even heard this, if you're not from a place where people treat your race as, as tantamount to unintelligent and all these different things, it quite literally doesn't even add up. The pieces don't float for me to even be like, oh, I'm black. So this lady thinks that I'm not smart right. and I'm going to struggle in school and blah, 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 blah. So I'm just like, what is this goofy bitch talking about <laughs> to me in this room? And it would be stuff like that all the time. They'd be doing and saying stuff and I'd be like... What is, what is going on? And I remember that guess so mad when I finally, when I finally started to figure out it was racist, right? <laughs> was my, my grade in grade 11, because I came to American group for grade 10. So it's grade 10 in Florida and then grade 11 and 12 in uh, West Virginia. So there was this competition called Declamation. It was where the whole school would have to do poetry. We'd have to memorize like a 50 line poem and perform it. And the best people, like a handful of them would go on to the big competition and win. Okay. So the first year, I obviously placed to do Declamation and I come third. And I'm not like outraged or anything like that. I don't like, I'm not like, because I remember the guy who won. I thought he was good. Cool. No problem. Mind you, other people did peep. Like there were a couple other black people like, you see, but I ain't even, right. the first year I'm not even thinking nothing. Now the next year, now that I see near, slaughter these people, slaughter. And my, I will never, and I remember it was this white girl that was terrible <laughs> and she fucked up and it was awful. So then when they announced the results again the next morning, third again so i'm like and you know what's crazy 2023 allow me to have been like this is some racist shit from the top of, i yes, would give them yes. 60 level all i said was i remember saying and this is so funny about people when people are they slight you and then they have so much affront to you in any way acknowledging that right because all i said was i remember saying that's not fair that wasn't fair it was unfair. That's it. I remember the specifically that I said it was not fair. When I asked about it, I just didn't bullshit. When people asked me, I was like, that's some bullshit. It wasn't fair. They remember they tried to come in and call me like, oh, I didn't appreciate. All oh, these good people took their time to grade. Aww, da, 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 da. I good people took their and time I to be racist. Yo, and I remember that's when the math started. I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. It's adding up. The math is mathing. Yes. It took me a while. I'm telling you, I got to college. College, getting educated in college was the best thing that ever happened. Where'd you go to school? I got to college and I'm like, Ohio University. Oh, Ohio. (laughs) Listen, I told you. Another racist ass place and people may not gather that, but it is. I remember driving through Ohio to go to Miami, Ohio to speak at a, to do poetry at Miami, Ohio University and passing a barn that said whites only. And I was like, Okay. Maybe I should turn around. Hey, no, but that's real. Very much. And you know, you know, West Virginia is bad when Ohio was like me getting to a nice safe space. Right. I was like, <laughs> Ohio was like, Ohio is the fun state next door to West Virginia. Like, oh, I'm like, oh, man. free me. All right. Yes. That's why I had to go to a law school in New York. I'm like, all right, I'm going to get stuck. If I do another boonies, I'm going to be, and I, if I take the bar and the boonies, I'm stuck. I'm going to be stuck. So we got to go somewhere else. Let's go to New York. But yeah, I learned on the fly. I really learned in application. They were saying crazy shit to me. And it was only me around just looking like. 
I mean, culture shock is like such a light way of even addressing that because that's just very lonely and very yeah, isolating. Absolutely. You know, not just like, you know, in terms of identity, but intellectually, you know, because you're having to parse through all of this information and, you know, context, et cetera, with a gut knowledge of like, it's different for me. But yeah. there's no one to really bounce it off of. When do yeah, you feel like out. you had that breakthrough, if ever, in your academic journey? When I figured out that I felt like I knew what was happening was... When you had like... When do you feel like you found like... Or did you ever find your tribe in academia? No. <laughs> Where'd you no. go to law school? I went to law school St. John's in, in New York in, and... St. John's in Staten in Island? Queens. In Queens. In Queens. Yeah, no. And it certainly was not their child. I would say, you know what's funny? I would, I would be honest... West Virginia and Florida and Ohio are far more overtly racist areas, obviously, than New York. Absolutely. Right? In terms of the areas, in terms of your living personal life experience. But my academic experience was way more racist in New York City than in all the other places. I, wow. Bar, bar none. Bar none. It's not even close. Because I speak at my alma mater all the time. Oh, my yeah? undergraduate, they ask me. Because they, academically, they recognize, obviously, they, it takes them a little second, you know. You you black, they gonna pass you up first, but they oh, get yes, around to me. it. Oh trust me, I I was on the cover of Purchase magazine after they had tried to kick me out of their school. <laughs> hey, listen, these schools be very, and they switch up when public opinion becomes a different kind of narrative. Yes, um, but no, in law school, I went to a prosecutor mill. And I was the only, only I was one of maybe like three people that decided to do defense work at all in my entire oh. class. And one of them, I think, went to California, went, went to Jersey. I was like the only PD decided to be a public defender in New York. Everybody else is a prosecutor. The deans were prosecutors. Am I everybody? Prosecutors, prosecutors, prosecutors. So that was quite the experience because, you know, I... We all know what it is to be the token, and especially in these of these white spaces, you know, yeah. they they get their one black person that they think is really academically gifted and they and they they treat you at some level of acknowledgement of that. And so when I'm graduating undergrad, at that time it's like, oh, I got in all the schools, I have all the awards, so they gas, they love me. I get to my law school and they did not choose that for me. I, I wasn't playing ball enough. I, you know, I if I had been a prosecutor, if I had been somebody who wanted to be a prosecutor, I've been big law minded, it would have been different. But I am me. And all <laughs> we were in disagreement. All of the time. Yeah. So I mean, I didn't great. realize that there was such like this, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a higher, not hierarchy, but there was like this preference, I, I guess, for like prosecutors versus criminal defense until yeah. I really old, got older and started to realize like, yes, because criminal defense, you're going to end up representing black and brown people more often than not. And yes. the assumption is that they are guilty and the prosecutors yes. are protecting the good of us, America. Yes. You know, and that yes. they, those people don't even deserve to be represented because, you know, when you're younger, you're just like, oh, defense is the bad guys. Prosecutors, the good guys. Because we're fed that. My own niece said, and that's how propaganda, we'd be very, very indoctrinated to believe that from very young. Because my own niece called me up one time and she was like, oh, I mean, you a prosecutor? She was like, auntie, you a prosecutor? Or, or you know, and I was like, no, baby, um, auntie is a defense attorney. She was like, oh. And I was like, no, no, no. Let, I, we the good guys, baby. Let's talk about well, it. Well, like, you're not representing Casey Anthony, you know? Yes. Yeah, and that, right. Very much so. And that's funny. People say things like that to you. They'll be like, oh, what about when you're an abolitionist or a defense attorney? Well, what about insert some kind of white person that doesn't get prosecuted by our criminal system? <laughs> and, and on the rare occasion, what they do? Are they convicted? And what's the, you know... Like we just seen Sam, what is it? Sam Bankman Freed, whatever his name is, just walk right on right out of court. The walk chick, right the chick court. Elizabeth, um, the one with the with the blood. Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes. Yes. 
She you still see ain't seen up? a jail cell. You see what's up? Holmes is at home. <laughs> no, but facts, but absolutely facts. Yeah, we are indoctrinated to believe that. And that's also something I was having that conversation with my friend actually earlier because he said something to me and I'm like, it's funny how you'll say you're a defense attorney and people expect you to like revere the system. I'm like, think about this logically. I am very much so against the system. I'm not a person who loves the law. I think the law is controlling everything around us and impacts black people in terribly disproportionately and intentionally. So in my mind, let me go and work towards that in service of black people, but not because I respect this institution. I think it's right. And that is a real, that does not make for a comfortable environment at a law school that is the foundational opposite. This is about a celebration of prosecutors and blah, blah, blah. So why did you choose to go there? Did you know it was a prosecutor mill? I know no better. I know no better. You can't know no better. Got it. I... I got in, so I got I, I got in everywhere I applied to law school, and then I chose based on full scholarship offers. Like, I'm going to go where I don't got to pay. Yeah. And it was between them and Michigan State. And I almost, I thought I was going to go to Michigan State because they were really nice to me during the, like, recruitment process. But when I went to visit the school, like, on the visiting day, everybody, I went with a friend of mine who was a black woman, too. Everyone else sat on the opposite side <gasps> of the room from us. The entire room sat on the opposite side of the room. And I was like, wow. you know fucking what? Yeah. I have done done a Florida bid, a West Virginia bid. Oh, I, ain't, ah, I ain't doing this shit again. Yeah. I am not doing it again. And so that was why. And I, then I was like, all right, let me go to St. John's. And, you know, at least at the very least, I would always say law school was a terrible experience, but at least I didn't pay for it. So <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> like, Whatever that works. So nice. Whatever yes. works. I mean, you talked so much about prison abolition. And I know for a lot of people, those two words seem just counterintuitive, right? It's like, how could we exist? How would this ever work? And I would love for you to just kind of lay prison abolition out for folks in a plain way. In the overview. I got you. So the first thing I always like to say about abolition to people is I expect that to sound nuts. I am not a person that's over here like, what? You don't believe that? You or I expect you the minute I say it or anything I say in this interview or any interview to convince you to suddenly become an abolitionist. It does not work like that. I abolition was first introduced to me in college by my thesis advisor. And I'm and I'm saying that as a person who was already writing a thesis called Colored Bodies Matter. And when my thesis advisor su- suggested abolition to me, I was like, excuse me? Close all the prisons and the jails. What, what you mean? What you gonna do? And when she gave me our prisons obsolete by Angela Davis, which yep. I think, listen, it's the gateway drug. It it is the gate. Uh, the signed copy. Drugs. I have a signed yes. copy. Oh, flex, flex for us because <laughs> I need one. <laughs> no one be able to tell me nothing. They'd see it soon as they walk in the house like, this right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she gave that to me and I would, I think the first thing that was so eye-opening to me was realizing, oh shit, right, prisons are man-made institutions. Like, we did not always have a prison industrial company. This is not... And it was funny that that was even eye-opening to me when I'm from a country where we don't have a prison industrial complex, right? We do not. Really? Our criminal system does... The Bahamas does not have a this prison system. The Bahamian police will ask you what happened and you'll tell them and they'll be like, that's not like that makes sense to me. Come on my face. <laughs> like, I'm telling you, you call you call the Bahamian police and tell them somebody slap you. They can say, and what you do? What? <laughs> and when you Is tell them what you do... Is this effective at all? Yes. because the Grenada police at this point are completely ineffective and I'm not saying that we should have a prison industrial crisis but we should absolutely have some semblance of 
repercussions for behaviors that are problematic to the society. See, this is the problem. We want repercussions for behaviors that the society in and of itself are the breeding grounds for. You see, yes. that's what becomes unfair. It's like all the things that like, especially the, like the, the, the main kind of crimes people like to talk about, like they talk about murder and violence and rape, which make up a very tiny percent of what is actually in the criminal system or prosecuted or regarded at all. Not because it's not hyper-present in our society, but because our criminal system doesn't give a fuck about those things. Right. Right? But the thing is, it's like, well, we want to punish people for rape, right? Or we want to punish people for rape and sexual assault and sexual harassment and all these things, theoretically, because our system doesn't actually do it. Ask anybody who's been a victim of these things. They will never tell you they got justice from the system. But we do not. And we violently respond to anybody suggesting we do anything about rooting that out in terms of how those attitudes come to be, right? We never want a system for that. Like, hey, can I get an education system that do something about why people don't seem to understand consent? Why you don't seem to see women as autonomous beings? Why you don't think men can be the victim of abuse? Why all these different things? We don't want to address any of that, but we want repercussions for playing out or manifesting the attitudes that we are teaching people. So I would say the Bahamas definitely, we have the problems, those kinds of problems mm-hmm. are there because we're, I mean, the Caribbean is very conservative in terms yes. of social ideology. So you're going to see that. But as far as the thing is, is the U.S. criminal system doesn't, I've represented probably over a thousand people. Okay. I may have one person represent, like charged with rape. You know what I mean? Oh, like wow. a couple of yeah. people, they are mostly, they're mostly bullshit regular human interactions. Like a mother called the police because her kid was upset and her people was banging on their neighbor's thing. You were fighting, arguing with your very regular kind of everyday human activities that do not need the criminal system to resolve them or to weigh in on them. But that is how America goes about it. So then what happens is America has a criminal system that majority prosecutes poor people, poor black and brown people for those kinds of what shouldn't be criminalized activity. But then the narrative, the entire narrative for why people support it is that violent, lawless, rape, da, 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 all these things. Uh, like, yeah, meanwhile, yeah, 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 the U.S. Yeah, system yeah. don't give a fuck about any of those things. They don't. If they did, the police would be the ones in jail. Say it again. Listen, it'd be the police in jail. <laughs> it would be the police in jail, and they never want to talk about those things. They won't. They won't talk about the fact that police, statistically, police solve less than two percent of crime. They won't talk about statistically the amount of rape and domestic violence and sexual assault that happens, and by police, statistically, those those things. They won't talk about the fact that eighty percent of everybody in the criminal system made less than twelve thousand dollars annually prior to their arrest. They don't talk about the two million people incarcerated, the four hundred thousand of whom are there. So, the thing about abolition is this. We recognize it is not that I believe I'm saying to you, I want them to close all the courts and, you know, fire the police and open up all the jails tomorrow. No, I'm not saying that because they wouldn't do it regardless. But more importantly, we don't have the infrastructure for doing that. This is not me saying that I don't believe that I believe crime is made up or that you don't experience crime or harm. No, no, no. I'm saying that I actually want us to address those things. And right now, the U.S. has created a prison and a criminal system that is a profit system that is meant to reproduce all of those things. And they want those things to happen in our communities. And that's why the same communities, generation after generation, are losing money, losing resources. Meanwhile, those things are all being put into our incarceration and funneling us into this entire cycle of experiencing the same harm and the same that. So I'm saying instead of continuing this policy decision, because it was a policy decision when the prisons expanded in the 60s and the 70s, instead of putting all our money into this massive prison industrial complex, you would give start taking away that money from the prisons and the policing and instead give that to those same communities yes. to be able to afford their education, their housing, their health care, uh, the, the mental health that they need so that those communities do not have to be policed and criminalized in a particular way. And that way we get ourselves to a position in the future where we do not have to have this massive criminal system. 
Kingston. You know, none of this, whether it's talking about abolishing prisons in this fashion or defunding the police in this fashion, none of this to me feels like it is rocket science. You know, the organizations to receive the funding are there. They exist. You know, the connectivity to the people, it is there. It exists. The only thing in the way are the people who do not want these changes to happen. They don't want these communities to get on their feet. They don't want there to be positive, you know, leveling up because to your point, it undermines their ability to use us at their will, to fund their pipelines to prison, to actually do the free labor that they're doing in prisons. I don't think people understand, like, there was a brother who was talking about how he was in prison in Texas and he was picking cotton. Yes, yes. Yes. In general, people don't, what people don't get, and I, you know, America does this, this clever thing where they condemn a part in order to preserve the whole. And by that, I mean this, America will feed Americans. America gave Americans the private prison narrative so that people go, oh, get rid of private prisons, prisons. That way they can say, it's not the problem is not prisons. The problem is not prisons or this criminal system. Right. It's the private prisons. It's whack and Meanwhile, Private and public prisons all use prison labor. They make collectively over $11 billion on goods produced by incarcerated people every year. That is happening in private and public prisons. They are not being paid for this service. And that happens in both places. But the narrative becomes that. And so people focus that energy there rather than the fact that the entire system is this. They don't look at the fact that the loved ones of incarcerated people owe over $28 billion in every year in commissary fees. In commissary fees and phone calls and all these different things it's a business yes. it is a business in new york if they you have conventions Rikers, like i said they have conventions rikers is pre-trial they had them at the, at the height of the pandemic cuomo had them creating making the hand sanitizer and the mask and all these different things for us to be able to use meanwhile people are they're in rikers dying not able to use it or socially distance for themselves but they are in Rikers pre-trial detention center people are being forced to produce what we need so it is happening across the board and and the funny thing is America likes these euphemisms. Like they'll say, oh, you know, the new Jim Crow or slavery 2.0 or modern day slavery. No, it's actually just slavery. And that is a fact. Like the Supreme Court, in the same breath that the Supreme Court established the means to abolish the practice, they also established the means to preserve it, right? They say slavery is abolished except, except, except. But you know what? People convicted of a crime. I really feel like people don't understand that these are laws that were written. So they don't understand that they can be unwritten, they can be shifted and morphed in whichever way is decided. And the actual constitution is made so that it can be amorphous to whoever's got the power, right? Exactly. And so when we look at like the 13th Amendment, that was written in the Reconstruction and it was them saying, okay, so, all right, all right, we're going to say no to slavery, but you have a whole room of former Confederates that are also in Congress now that are like, well, hold on, let's not get out of hand. <laughs> let's not get we, carried away. Let, we could throw a little, little something in there for us to do a little something with, you know? Right. Well, what about them prisoners? I mean, they're, they're, they're not doing nothing good for society. Might as well pick some cotton. And when we saw in in the midterms, people saw like the headings that said slavery is on the ballot. In these Mm -hmm. five states, slavery is on the ballot, right? And people were like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And then I had to explain like, okay, this is like 
you know, sensationalized heading to get your attention, but it is slavery. Yes. It is slavery. And it was created in the same context. Like, that's the part that people have to understand. It's not like this was born out of some other conversation. It was born in the same conversation as saying, so we're going to say no to like actual conventional slavery. So we're just going to say this though. Yeah. And that's the thing is like people, people don't want you to say that because they have a hard, people want to believe they want to believe that they that they have conceded to and that they recognize the horror that is slavery. And obviously, unequivocally, they would have been against that. They would not have been somebody saying, but the South relies on that. Oh, this is a big business. This is an industry. What are they going to do? But they would say that because, in fact, present day, if slavery is a system and by which a person is held, held against their will, they are denied of their freedom and their civil liberty and forced to use their labor and produce goods for the money for somebody else. That's That's slavery. Babe, that's what we've got. That is what we've got. We have 2 million people incarcerated in this country. 400,000 of those people have not even had a trial. All of those people are being forced. They are forcibly held and they are being used to make money for the state and they are being disenfranchised. That is slavery. But people, people, what they what they have a hard time is recognizing that you would be akin to the people for that time that would have said, oh, I think slavery is horrible, but still we need to take yeah. time in the country and there are other considerations. They don't want to believe and come to terms with the fact that you, if you are present day somebody, when people are responding to you and saying, hey, people are being, communities are being decimated. This is slavery. People are dying. People are suffering. And you are still somebody that's saying, yeah, but I mean, <sighs> but um, well, I'll say that I'll ask you this because I know that there's people listening who I'm sure are saying, okay, but then if they're not doing that, what would they be in there doing? What could they be in prison doing if they're not if they're not doing labor and they're not helping the economy? Then what else are they doing? They shouldn't get to just sit there and lay on their back all day and watch TV and play cards. That's just a vacation. So what you know? What could they be doing instead then? You know, I think something I want to shift towards and I'm going to start explicitly is I want to I want to start advocating for a politics of selfishness because I think people believe in in all of our advocacy, people always feel like you're asking them to do a favor. They always feel like you're asking them to care about other people. And I actually want to ask you to care about yourself and recognizing that maybe sometimes being punitive towards the next person isn't going to do something for you. Like when you, you ever hear the, the mm. saying when your hand is in the lion's mouth, ease it out gently? Yes. At the end of the day, like you could, you don't have to like your neighbor to recognize that cussing him out is probably not going to get him to agree to what it is that you want him to do or whatever kind of violent this or or these kinds of things. People say to you, they'll say, well, what about the Nordic model? They have a Nordic model over there in Norway where they treat them nice and they have this rehabilitative system. And it's like, yeah, because everybody everybody there is white in an agreement that they want, they recognize that they that deserve what is it, for the betterment of the whole. They deserve this help. They deserve this. And what will better us all is if I get you the help you need. You don't need to love your neighbor, but do you love you? you and recognize that, hey, if you want to live in a society that's free from crime, if you want to live in a society that's free from violence, free from rape, free from sexual assault, free from all of these terrible things, if you then create a box with nothing but that rampant in it, and you put those people, you put the same people who you say were already inclined to be violent and commit all this crime against you, and you say, hey, go buck wild, defend yourself, save yourself in that box, and come back. Come and back. then come back. Let's see what you learned. And come back. And come back. What the fuck do you think they learn? And while that's happening to them, even if you think that that person, if you think your approach is going to be, oh, well, then this should lock them all up and throw away the key. 
Let me ask you, Ding. What happens to their children out there? What happens to their children, their cousins, their mommy, their auntie? How do you think those things impact that? Because something people love to talk about, when they talk about crimes of poverty, they like to restrict it to like, oh, I stole some food and then exclude violence and exclude all these other things. Like those are not crimes of poverty. Like those things are not brought about by a society that right. preys on you. And I always say is, when are you your best self? You know what I'm saying? Like when I'm broke, it's not just that I'm broke. I'm not just liable to steal some money to go pay my bill. I'm also liable to curse you clean the fuck out. <laughs> I am far more likely to fight you. <laughs> I am far more likely to consider your yes. interests so much less when I am not in a good position. But if my bills are paid, if my bills are paid, if I have community, if people are being nice to me, I am so yeah. much more likely to consider my neighbor. Yes. You know? And so that's what I want to say is the politics of self Selfishness is recognizing that wanting good for others or wanting to put other people in the best position to succeed is so that when that person can succeed, they have no interest to bring you down. They don't have to want to bring about your failure. So that's my answer. But um, <laughs> Well, we have some questions that the people have for you. Yes. And so y'all yeah. know what it is. It's time for us to head on over to the Patreon, to the Amandaverse, because the SEAL squad wants to get in on some questions. And they are um, very good questions because we have a very intellectual base of people here. So see y'all over there. The last dose. Well, I am always astonished and empowered by your brilliance. Thank you. you know, I think when people saw that the title was, you know, the pipeline to prison, they probably thought, oh man, like this going to be, you know, super heavy. But what I think is really great about your way of explaining things is that it always feels like there's a hopefulness in just the realities that these were things that were man-made and they were put in place and therefore they can be man-changed. Right. Exactly. And exactly. in order for that to happen, there has to be education. There has to be yes. unity. You know, there there has to be a, like a choice shift. What do you feel like is the biggest obstacle to prison reform at present? Access to information. You know, I think something that people a myth I think we're painted on our side of the fence is people make you feel like to be somebody an abolitionist or to be someone who believes in reform or progressive or anything progressive in you. They make you feel like you need to have the strongest, most every case fact, da-da-da-da-da, yeah. and be able to resist every... Meanwhile, the most pervasive views and schools of thought and ideology in our world are the flimsiest, the most easily debunked, stupid shit. Yeah. Everything out of the mouth of the right, everything that we're dealing with is nonsense. But the reality is you hear it more. Yes. You don't get to hear our viewpoints, which is why, to me, it is not a coincidence, and they never talk about them together. It's not a coincidence that the summer of 2020 happened, and then book bans happened, and everything that they do yep. with the schooling system and all that. I, even though they don't tie them together because the reality is I always say this it's like I would have been a lawyer regardless but I wouldn't have been this kind of lawyer I became the way I am and the views I have because my thesis advisor and what they with the information that they made available to me and what they taught me about abolition I could have easily been just as smart and go just as hard to be a prosecutor I could be doing the wrong things you know what I mean but I was changed my my the information I was presented was different so to me it's not being a lawyer is what what, what makes a difference is education is what we're told and what we share and and recognizing that 
people get defeated. And I noticed this from a lot of my fans. It's like they feel like there's some piece of information you're supposed to be able to give them that they are going to go armed in every debate with and it's going to change that person's mind. It don't work like that, baby. It does not work no. like that. I do not want anybody to, and I don't expect anybody to hear me talk one time, one conversation and be like, I'm just going to abandon the entire worldview that I have built my whole foundation on. But what happens is, is over time, like I didn't become an abolitionist when I got our prisons obsolete, but I am now and I don't know what day that happened, right? So information to me is going to be what really changes it for us. That right there, it's, you know, sometimes I'm like, damn, like I'm being redundant, but it's like, that's necessary. It needs to yes. be hypnotic. It needs to be... Yes repetitive, there needs to be retention. And yes. you got to say it a myriad of different ways in a myriad of different places to a multiple different types of people. And to your point, 2020, they saw that people were waking up and they said, oh, yes. oh, 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 we need to shut all that None down. That. Shut it down. Shut it down. That's what it's you strategic, saw strategic. It's systemic. It's not by accident that when exactly. you saw people hit the streets two years later, they said, okay, no more books. No books, no history, no curriculum. I don't want to that, that. They say, I want to see that. And that's why. Because if people know, at the end of the day, people don't know. They're being educated and indoctrinated in a society that wants, to, wants them to feel a particular kind of way. So they just aren't aware of certain information. And when you make them aware of that, that changes how they go about certain things. And so they're trying to stop us from making people aware. But we won't stop. We won't. Can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> hey, Rockefeller Records. All right. <laughs> Well, uh, tell the people where to find you. Yes, find me. Well, first of all, my YouTube show, Illuminati the Show, which Amanda needs to get booked for my next interview. Um, so Illuminati the Show on YouTube. And my Twitter and my Instagram, my TikTok and everything is Miss Olurin. And my Substack is also Illuminati. There it is. The genius, the brilliant one, and the purposeful. Uh, let me Illuminati. Oh, I'm about to call you Illuminati. <laughs> you don't have to say Olay. Make your life easy, Amanda. <laughs> well, you pronounced your name three different ways in this interview. This, it's Olaya me, but I say Olay. I just go by Olay. <laughs> I was like, she just said something different. Then I've heard it. I was like, wait. Okay. I'm like calling that. you Olay. And that <laughs> yes. makes me feel like a white woman in a school. It is absolutely okay. <laughs> it really does. But I really appreciate you and just continue in these... She just turned 30, y'all. Okay. So it's just beginning. We're, ju we're just at the beginning thank of you. the Let flourish. <laughs> so I, I can't wait to bear witness. And thank you for joining us here today on Small Doses. Thank you, 